Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and these brothers that are coming to the front, they're going to make their way to the back with Bibles in hand. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll give you one of those. And it's a gift every Lord's Day, and on Christmas Day, especially appropriate to be giving gifts to you, and no better gift than the Word of God. So it is our gift. Keep that. Bring it back with you each Sunday as we look at God's Word together. Luke chapter 2, and we're just going to see verses and passages that lead up to Luke 2 and then flow from it, so we'll read a portion of it later in our service, but Luke chapter 2. I want to make you aware that next week is, of course, New Year's Day. We're going to have, as we always do in the first couple of Sundays of the year, what we call the State of the Church Address, in which we're going to look at where we are in our church's 10-year plan, and then we're going to preview what it is that we hope to accomplish in this particular coming year in order to move forward. So that will be next week and the week after the week after that. Also, before we get into the message, I want to make mention that uh, we were able to walk in here with some snow that had come uh, and have salt put down for us so we don't slip because on Christmas Day, there's an army of volunteers who come here early to make that happen for us. And so I just want to say a public thank you to the men who did that, not to mention the folks who had to come in very early and, in fact, practice most of Christmas week to make the beautiful music that we've heard uh, today uh, available for us as well. So volunteers are what make the ministry go, and a thank you to all of the volunteers who do that week in and week out. Today we devote the message to the theme of Christmas. I have a book on my shelf called Shocked by the Bible, Astonishing Facts You've Never Been Told. The very first chapter deals with Christmas, where author Joe Kovacs says this, none of the following items are mentioned in the Bible concerning the birth of Jesus. The word Christmas, a Christmas tree, or any tree for that matter, hanging ornaments, December, a little drummer boy, winter, snow, yule, yule logs, wreaths, Boughs of holly, mistletoe, colorful lights, eggnog, candy canes, parties, drinking, shopping, reindeer, St. Nick's, Santa Claus, elves, toys, wrapping paper, caroling, cookies, chimneys, stockings, colors of red, green, and white, Bing Crosby, Jimmy Stewart. And he goes on to say, now I don't think many people will be shocked that Bing Crosby dreaming of a white Christmas and Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life, are absent from the pages of the Bible. But he says, I cannot say the same for the other, other items on the list, which he cheekily adds, I have checked the list twice, he says. Having completed a frenzied time for all of us of planning, of preparation, of shopping, spending, anticipating, participating, and then finally contemplating all of that, after all, how much did we spend? How many pounds have I gained? there's still the matter of the birth of, of Jesus. And it would be good then if we could come away from the holiday with an understanding regarding why, in fact, Jesus was born. Now, for what it's worth, I like the stuff that are, were on the list that I read, and you probably do too. And so my purpose in this is not to disparage the cultural customs associated with Christmas, but to just make sure that we are not so caught up in those that we fail to remember and understand what Christmas is all about. 
So let's bow for a moment and ask God to help us to focus our minds on that. Father, we thank you for gathering us on this holy day, this holiday, this Lord's day where we do remember the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, having come to earth. And Lord, we have so many cultural customs that bring such joy and such memories and tradition for uh, so many of us. And we thank you for those. But Lord, they can, if we are not careful, obscure what this is really about. And so we ask you to help us in the moments ahead to be able to focus our minds and open our hearts to the truth about why it is that the Lord Jesus came, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, in our time together, I want to answer that question, why was Jesus born? But in order to answer that question, we have to answer another one first, and that is, what was God's purpose overall in creating His world? Now, I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 2, which tells us of the birth of Jesus, and as I said, we're going to look at that briefly a bit later. But for now, just notice that in your Bible, there are many pages to the right of Luke chapter 2. So there's a lot that happens after Luke chapter 2 is the idea, and there are many more to the left before Luke chapter 2. And so that means that the event of Jesus' birth was preceded by a whole lot that led up to what we celebrate today. And then it was followed by still more that's happening now and will happen in the future according to Scripture. Jesus' birth was part of God's plan that goes back thousands of years before and it will be completed sometime in the future, a future that the Bible tells us about. In the very last book of the Bible and in the second to the last chapter in that book, it's telling us about the consummation of all of human history and the scene is a garden and a city and we're told this, now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Now that setting at the end is important because it mirrors the setting at the beginning, and it gives explanation to what happens in between. At the end, we find a garden city in which humanity enjoys the presence of and relationship with God. And at the very beginning, that's what we find as well. The opening pages of the Bible tell us that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, we know that the first man and woman experienced this as a routine occurrence because they knew what it sounded like for God to come and walk with and then talk with them. We were made for that. And that will be accomplished once and for all in the future. So at the, the end of human history, you have a garden paradise on earth in which God dwells with those He made. And at the beginning, you have a garden paradise in which God dwells with those He made. God created the world to live in relationship with us. Or in the words of the outline that you should have received when you came in today, God made us to be with Him. You see this at the beginning and at the end, and in between you find it mentioned as the goal toward which God is working. Here's just a sampling of what the Bible says about that, that idea of God making us to be with us, both before and after the birth of Jesus. 
Going back to the first part of your Bible, the third book in your Bible, Leviticus, God says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And you find that wording throughout Scripture. The prophet Jeremiah, God says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all of their heart. Through the prophet Ezekiel, they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I their God. In your New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. You notice that's in quotation marks because it's quoting the first part of the Bible. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts, be their God and they will be my people. And so if the world had gone according to God's original design, we'd be living in that garden paradise today. The man and the woman were given explicit instructions by God regarding their blessed responsibilities. And they were to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy the presence of and relationship with their creator God. I remind you at the beginning what God says. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care and to take care of it. And God gave them one test, one tree from which he told them not to eat, but we know the story. They, and because they are representatives, our representatives, then we disobeyed God. And very quickly, the garden paradise became a paradise lost. The Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And it was in that context that they heard the Lord God walking as they had in the past, as we saw earlier. But after that, we're told something tragic. After they hear the sound of the Lord God walking, the sound that they were apparently familiar with because it would happen routinely, Now the Bible says something in addition. We read earlier, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from God. They were made to enjoy the presence of and relationship with God, but now they are hiding. In what transpires, we'll see important concepts now that carry throughout the Bible's story all set in motion in these first three chapters of the Word of of God. And in the third chapter of your Bible, from which we just read, it goes on to say that God told them the consequences of their disobedience, that is, their sin. But in the midst of that judgment, we see the grace of God as well. The Bible tells us God made coverings for them. Importantly, He made those coverings of animal skins. The end of chapter 3 of Genesis, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The first death in the Bible is that of an animal for the covering of another. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. There is death because there is sin. Death is payment. It's the consequence. It is the wage of sin. And God also gives a a promise in that, that third chapter. The the evil that caused this disaster is going to be destroyed by one who would be born into the human race called the offspring of the woman. God said to the serpent, the serpent that had tempted the man and the woman 
to begin with. He says to the man, in, uh, to the serpent, who did that tempting, representing Satan, this, the offspring of the woman will crush your head. And these themes of God's grace in providing a substitute and His holiness that requires sin to be paid for and looking forward to the promised one who will do that will recur throughout the pages of Scripture. God made us to be with Him, but sin made us to be apart from God. Again, Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. He drove them out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a, flashing, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There were two special trees in the garden. The one God forbade and the one they were designed to partake of, the tree of life. But they failed to protect the garden from evil. And now the garden will be protected from them. They failed to protect the garden from evil, and now it is being protected from us. You see, you cannot be in the presence of and in relationship with God unless you're holy, unless you are without sin. So how is that going to be accomplished? Now stay with me as I quickly survey 2,000 years of history in the first part of your Bible. I'll do it pretty quickly. But that first part of your Bible we call the, the Old Testament, it tells us that God designated a man through whose line the promised human offspring of the woman would come. That man was Abraham, and that first part of your Bible before Luke chapter 2 is about his descendants, the Jews, and the nation they comprised, Israel. Abraham was, a chosen, was given a chosen son through whom this line was to continue. But amazingly, after waiting to the age of 100 years old to have this promised son, God says to Abraham, I want you to offer that son Isaac as a sacrifice. We shudder to think of it, but the Bible tells us of Abraham's faith, believing God, and his consequent willingness to do as God commanded. Many of you know the story at the last moment, Abraham having passed the test of believing, God provided a substitute, a lamb. Abraham's offspring through Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons became numerous, but they found themselves in, in Egypt, and they grew to a people, the Bible tells us, of about 2 million who were oppressed by the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. God heard their cry and he sent a deliverer, Moses. By God's power and again by the sacrifice of animals, Israel left Egypt. You may recall that God sent plagues on Egypt to force Pharaoh to let his people go. The final plague was death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. But any who had the blood of an animal on the doorpost of their home that death angel would pass over, and thus the institution of what we call Passover. They were saved. They were delivered. They were rescued by the power of God and by blood, the death of another on their behalf. And God continued to pursue His purpose for creation, to live in relationship with His image bearers. But you cannot be in relationship with God unless you're holy. And so God gave instructions to Moses about he, God, 
about how God could be approached. He told Moses to build a worship center called the Tabernacle, a large tent with compartments in it. And God gave elaborate instructions regarding who, when, and under what circumstances one could enter the compartment where he, God, was present. It always involved the sacrifice of an animal to cover temporarily the sin of those approaching God. Only one man, one time each year, could enter that inner compartment of the tabernacle, or as it was sometimes called, the tent of meeting. The Bible tells us that the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Even Moses could not enter. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted above the tabernacle, they would set out. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all of their travels. So they're reminded regularly of the presence of God, but the fact that they cannot enter in freely and have access to the presence of God. One of Abraham's descendants was David. David of Bethlehem. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem because a thousand years before, the Bible predicted that the one who would come would not only be a son of Abraham, but he would come through the line of David. And he would be born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. And as a descendant of Abraham, it was then through this line of David that the promised one who would come. And David wanted to build a permanent place, a temple for God's presence among his people. But it was David's son, Solomon, who actually completed that work. And Solomon built it on Mount Moriah, the very place that Abraham had taken Isaac to be offered to God a thousand years before that. Solomon spent seven years building the temple of God. I once heard an estimation of the dollar value of the temple. It was in the billions with a B. That's all the more incredible when we realize that the building itself was smaller than the size of a basketball court. The Bible says this, when all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Now, some of you might recognize the reference to the ark of the Lord's covenant, if nothing else, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it was a box that contained sacred items like the tablets of the law that God had given to Moses 500 years earlier and the staff that Moses used in his confrontations with Pharaoh. And it was placed in the inner compartment of the temple where God would condescend to meet with His people. But because He is holy and they, like we, are not, no one could go in except one man, the high priest, and only once each year. And the passage goes on to say, the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark. Now, do you remember the cherubim? these angelic but warrior-like creatures who guarded the entrance to the garden, they now guard access to God's meeting place in the temple. Because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, there is fear and there's selectivity in man's access to and relationship with God. 
And so only the priest could go in and, as I say, into that most uh, holy inner compartment one time a year. There was an outer portion, the most holy place, but outside of that, the holy place. And here's what the Bible says about the holy place. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In effect, they can't be there when God is because He's holy and they're not. The Bible tells us that these chosen people of God continued to sin against the Lord, and as a result, they were taken into captivity in Babylon, and Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The people later returned from captivity. Another temple was built for God, but it was nothing compared to Solomon's, and the Bible says that the people wept at the comparison and the visual image of all that had been lost. Over time, the people became complacent about the worship of God, simply going through the motions. They were overtaken by invaders, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Herod, one of the Roman rulers in charge of Jerusalem, added to the temple in a massive construction project, and that's the temple that we read about in the New Testament when Jesus is born, and we read throughout the Gospels. But God's presence is not there in that temple. The sin and the neglect and the hypocrisy of His chosen people have resulted in a spiritual malaise such that God's design of His presence of and relationship with Him is not happening. But thanks be to God, there is still the promised offspring of the woman. And your New Testament begins with His blessed arrival. Many of you know the story, but a sinless one, born of a virgin, is born just as had been predicted centuries before. He is the Messiah, in Hebrew the Mashiach, the Anointed One, or in Greek in your New Testament, He is the Christ. And Luke chapter 2 tells us that people have been waiting for a very long time for the arrival of this one. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. An angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, very first chapter of your New Testament. And he said, you were to give this child, Joseph, the name Jesus. Here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. The reason he was named Jesus is because that's what he came to do, save his people. And the name Jesus means Yahweh, God, saves. Mary and Joseph apparently believed that. And they indeed gave him the name Jesus. Verse 22, when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. For those who are unable to afford a lamb, they could do doves or pigeons. And that's what Mary and Joseph are doing because they were a poor family. Contrary, this is just an aside, but contrary to what the televangelists tell you, Jesus was not rich. He did not come to enrich himself. He was born into a poor family, as we see here. 
And with all of this now at the, happening at the temple, some are faithfully awaiting his arrival. And one such faithful servant is found in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. This is the one who is going to fulfill God's purpose of having his presence and relationship with his image bearers. And one of those prophecies, one of those predictions concerning him 700 years prior is found through the prophet Isaiah. In his famous words, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. And we have been singing today and throughout these prior weeks about Emmanuel. His name is Jesus, and he has the title, the, the Christ, and yet you're going to call his name Emmanuel. It can get confusing. What is his name? Why would he be called Emmanuel in addition to his name Jesus, God saves? Well, Matthew tells us that. First chapter in your New Testament. He quotes Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, and then he adds, which means... God with us. God made us to be with Him. Sin made us apart from Him. But God made Jesus to be with us. God made Jesus to be with us. Now when I say God made Jesus, we need to be careful when we talk about Jesus being made. Because He is God, and therefore He's existed for all eternity. What we celebrate at Christmas is not the beginning of Jesus' existence, but rather the beginning of His mission on earth to save His people from their sins. And so when we say God made Jesus, God, God sent Jesus, God the Son became human, added humanity to what He had already been for all eternity. So he became the unique person of the God-man, God and man. And that's why Pastor Larry read for us earlier in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, notice the Word was God. So whoever the Word is, he's God. And then as Pastor Larry read down, to the verse 14, here's what verse 14 tells us, identifies who the Word is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's verse 1. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 uses His name, Jesus, to identify Him with this very person. And so John 1 is teaching us very explicitly that Jesus is God, but He became flesh. 
God and man, God and humanity now. And notice I have underlined for you on the screen, He made His dwelling among us. Made His dwelling is literally He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the place where God is found. Jesus is the tabernacle where God dwells. God is with us in Jesus. The Bible teaches later in Colossians chapter 2, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Jesus is God and Jesus came to be with us. And so the presence of God is with humanity. In Jesus, but what about relationship? There's the presence, but then there's the relationship that's been lost. Sin creates an insurmountable barrier from a human standpoint to having a relationship with God. Remember, we saw many times in the lead up to the coming of Jesus that animals served as substitutes for Adam and Eve, for Isaac, for the nation of Israel at Passover, for the nation in an ongoing way in the sacrifices of the tabernacle in the temple. But those could never serve to end the separation that exists between a holy God and sinful people like us. And that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, the Bible tells us in John chapter 2, he exclaimed this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lot of lambs had been killed. But this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Bible then contrasts the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us with the sacrifice of animals by priests for centuries before and says there is really no comparison. The writer of Hebrews says this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. He goes on to say, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In order to have a relationship with God, you've got to have the holiness that God has. How do I get it? How do you get it? Jesus is the one who was able to restore the broken relationship that we have with God and solve the problem created by God's holiness and our sinfulness. When I used to teach teenagers leading a, a youth group years ago, I would sometimes ask them, why did Jesus come? And they would immediately say he came to die on the cross, which is a good answer. But then I would then ask them, you know, how old was Jesus when he died on the cross? And they would usually answer correctly, 30, 33. And I would say, why did he wait until he was 33 to die? If that was the reason he came, why not just get it over with? You see, it's not that Jesus only came to die, but Jesus came to live the life that we were supposed to live. He lived the righteous life 
that we were supposed to live. And as a result of that, his death on the cross as our substitute, as the Lamb of God, was fully acceptable to God the Father. He lived for us and he died for us. The death was preceded by the life, a perfect life of righteousness. And that is why the Apostle Paul could then say this in Philippians chapter 3, in him, that is in Christ, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is comes from what I do, but that which is through faith, believing, that's the word for believe, in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of belief, faith. You see, where Adam failed as our representative, Jesus succeeded as our representative. And that's why one of the verses in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that, verse has, that, that song has about eight verses in it. One of them says this, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. God made us to be with him. Sin made us apart from him. God made Jesus to be with us, and Jesus gave the Spirit to remain with us. Now, if you are still awake and thinking as we've been going through this, you may have thought, you know, I was under the impression that God is everywhere. So how can he be in the temple or tabernacle or attached to the body of Jesus? That's a good question. The fancy term for God being everywhere is he's omnipresent. Here's what theologian Wayne Grudem says about that. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. God is everywhere but he acts differently in different places. So God is with, now hear this, God is with us, his people, the Bible teaches, in a special way. And now at all times, not just at times in the temple or when Jesus walked the earth. In fact, the Bible teaches that God has made those who belong to Jesus to be his new temple. So here's what Scripture says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. It goes on to say, in Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you yourselves, and stated that way, you yourselves, to indicate that the Greek word that's translated with those two words is plural, you together as the congregation, you yourselves are God's temple and God's Spirit lives in you. God is everywhere, but God is with His people in a special way. I had shown this verse earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but the statement that begins this verse is very important. It says, we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Friends, what we celebrate at Christmas is God fulfilling the purpose for which he made humanity. 
to have a relationship with us, to be with us. And that is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ who gives his spirit to his people. And God then dwells with his people in a special, in a special way. Your take-home truth is simply this, God has come to be with us. But I want to end with just some applicational truths then of what we've seen together. The first is this. Please understand that a relationship with God is not automatic. Many people hear something like this and they say, very good, thank you, Jesus. And then they carry on with their life. But a relationship is not automatic. That is, you have to avail yourself of the gift that God offers on this Christmas. He offers that gift to you in the form of Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who rescues you, delivers you from the separation caused by sin. But you receive that. The passage that Pastor Larry read earlier from John chapter 1 says, He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But those who did receive Him, He gave the power to become the sons of God. So it's not automatic. You receive Him as your Savior. We're going to give you opportunity to do that in just a moment. It's not automatic. Please understand, it comes only through Jesus. You were not, you were not born with this special relationship with God. So it's not automatic, and you didn't have it when you were born. It comes through receiving Jesus at a point in time. I hear many people say, you know, I've always had a relationship with God. We come into the world, all of us, without a relationship with God. Just the very reason Jesus came to restore that. But the great news is, this relationship with God is offered to all. It's offered to you now on this Christmas. And when that happens, it makes a difference then in your life. You want what God wants. He changes you when you come to Jesus. And that's why then God can dwell in a special way with His people, a gathering of people who are like-minded, who have had their desires changed by Him. And so we are the temple of the Lord, meaning a relationship with God is displayed in His church. And so ask yourself if you have that. Have you had a point in time where you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Received the gift that He alone offers? And if not, now can be the time, and what a great time, Christmas Day 2022, for that to happen. So we are going to bow and pray, and as we do, I urge you to take what God offers to all, salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how do you do this? You realize you're a sinner, that sin has separated you from God. In order to be reconciled to God, it comes through Jesus. But Jesus accomplished that in his life and then culminated with his death on the cross. Repent. Lord, I'm going to go your way. I'm changed by you. I'm going to live in a way that demonstrates that change. Receive Jesus Christ. Pray from your heart to God in your own words, no magic formula. Lord, I recognize that I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. I ask you to forgive me. I give my life to you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that comes only through Jesus. Let's bow together.
Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to be, yes, in your presence, but in your presence in a special way. And you are with your people who have your spirit in that special way, people who are your temple as individuals and are your temple plural as we come together as your church and carry out your work in your world. Thank you for the love that motivated you to send God the Son to rescue humanity that had wandered from you because of sin. Thank you for reaching down at a point in time and rescuing me individually and all of those here who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And Lord, we thank you in advance for the work that you are going to do in the hearts of some in this room who may have come here not knowing what Christmas is really all about. Lord, we pray for them that you would move upon their hearts and cause them to see the love of God for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that they might embrace him on this day when we celebrate his coming to earth. May this day then for them be the celebration of the birth of Jesus and also be the celebration of their new birth. We will give you the praise for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we standing? Okay, let's stand for our closing song. The song that we end every year with on Christmas is called All Glory Be to Christ. It's the tune of Auld Lang Syne. We'll sing together with instruments and we'll have an acapella section at the end. So looking forward to that.
Amen. That concludes our service this morning. Just one service with everybody this morning. Looking forward to see you back again next Lord's Day.